2 Samuel 8, verses 1 to 18. King David has received God's covenant, and now here in chapter 8, we begin to see how that covenant plays out in the life of David's kingdom. So let's give our attention now to the reading of God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 1 of 2 Samuel chapter 8. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Metheg Amah out of the hand of the Philistines. And he defeated Moab, and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death, and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. David also defeated Hadad-Ezer, the son of Rahab, king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for a hundred chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadad-Ezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadad-Ezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Batah and from Barathai, cities of Hadad-Ezer, King David took very much bronze. When Toy, king of Hamat, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadad-Ezer, Toy sent his son Joram to David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadad-Ezer and defeated him, for Hadad-Ezer had often been at war with Toy. And Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. These also King David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued, from Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadad-Ezer, the son of Rahab, king of Zobah. And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Joab, the son of Zariah, was over the army, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. And Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests. And Sariah was secretary. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites. And David's sons were priests. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray now and ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of His word. Let's pray. Father, we do give You thanks and praise this morning that You are steady and sure and unchanging. You are a mighty fortress for Your people. You provide us the solid rock of the Lord Jesus Christ upon which we can stand. You love us with a love that will not let us go. And You sustain us, Father, with the truth that Christ uh, will never die again. Having died once, He now lives forever to intercede for His people. All of these things, Father, You have reminded us so that we might persevere in the faith and be encouraged and be comforted in the face of life in this world. We pray now, God, that You would give us ears to hear the unchanging truth of Your Word. Father, we know that all Scripture is God-breathed and given to us for our good, 
So would you give us ears to hear it now? Father, would you keep me from error and would you grant your people discernment of God that we might know the truth and that we might hold fast to it? And we pray, Father, even as, that, as we seek to hold fast to the truth, you would remind us of the good news of the gospel that you hold fast to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the last few months, my boys and I have spent a lot of time in our driveway playing pickup basketball. It's as fun as it sounds. Sam and Owen together versus me, first to 21 wins. And I'll be honest with you, the boys beat me as often as I beat them. They're getting pretty good. But as good as the boys are getting and as much fun as we have playing basketball in the driveway, no one driving by on our street would mistake our pickup games for the NBA playoffs. For one thing, I'm too slow and I'm too short. Plus, the court is smaller, the goal is lower, and there's not 20,000 people cheering us on. You would never mistake our pickup games for the NBA playoffs. But you can tell that we're playing basketball. Granted, it's not as polished, not as skilled, but the basics are there. We dribble, we shoot, we rebound. It's an imperfect picture for anyone driving by, but it's a picture nonetheless. It's still basketball right there in the driveway. Our text this morning, 2 Samuel 8, is a bit like those pickup basketball games. It's an imperfect picture of a much greater reality. No one reading through the Bible would mistake this chapter for the coming of the new heavens and the new earth. No one reading through the Bible would conclude that this is the kingdom of God in all of its fullness, but it's still the kingdom. The basics are there. God's king on God's throne, shepherding God's people, defeating God's enemies, and honoring God's word. Is it an imperfect picture? Yes, to be sure. And in light of the New Testament, we know there's something much greater to come. But it's a picture nonetheless. It's still the kingdom. Friends, this is where it helps to remember that Old Testament history is never merely history. Old Testament history also has a prophetic element. In fact, in the Hebrew ordering of the Old Testament, the books of Samuel are counted among the former prophets. Old Testament history always has a prophetic element. It both reports historical events and points us ahead to what is to come. And that's what we find here in 2 Samuel 8. On the surface, the historical aspect of this chapter is clearly present. This is a history of David's military campaigns. One after another, we read how David's realm expanded as he defeated his surrounding enemies. It's historical record. But on another level, the chapter also has that prophetic element. It anticipates the coming reign of David's greater son, the Messiah, the Christ, who would usher in not just an earthly kingdom, but the very kingdom of God. A kingdom of salvation and justice. A kingdom that would span all the nations of the earth. A kingdom that can never be overthrown. Is that kingdom present in all of its fullness in 2 Samuel 8? No, of course not. But the basics are present. Or perhaps it would be better to say the pattern is present. Here we see the pattern of what it will look like when God's kingdom does come in all of its fullness. You see, it's history, but with a prophetic aspect. And that gives us the bearings for our study 
this morning. To understand 2 Samuel 8, we need to understand both the history and the greater reality that is to come. We need to understand both the history and what the history points towards. We need to grasp the significance of David's earthly kingdom and then see how that earthly kingdom prepares us to recognize the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so to that end, I'd like to draw your attention to three kingdom realities from 2 Samuel 8. Three kingdom realities. Each one begins in the flesh and blood history of David's life, and each one also points us on to the Lord Jesus. The first reality actually occurs twice in the chapter. First in verses 1-6, to and then again in verses 13-14. to And it's the reality of kingdom conquest. Kingdom conquest. It's not hard to pick out the main point of these verses. The author gives us a clear note, like the beat of a steady drum. It's the word defeated, which we could also translate struck down. Did you hear that steady drum beat as we read? Verse 1, David defeated. Verse 2, he defeated. Verse 3, he defeated. Verse 5, David struck down. Verse 13, David returned from striking down. It's the same word throughout the chapter. And the author beats that same note over and over to make his point. These verses recount David's victories. And it's not hard to pick up on that theme. It may, however, be difficult to discern the significance of that theme. We see the action plain enough, but why is it so important? Why does the author devote an entire chapter to the history of David's conquests? Well, there are a few different reasons why. And when taken together, these reasons help us discern the significance. The first reason has to do with geography. If you were to plot David's victories on a map, you would see that each campaign hit a different point on the compass. Notice it with me in the text. In verse 1, David defeats the Philistines, the longtime nemesis of God's people. This is the last time you'll hear from the Philistines until 2 Kings. David whoops them pretty good. They're gone for a long time. And if you know anything about the Old Testament geography, you know the Philistines live along the Mediterranean coast to the west, southwest of Israel. So verse 1, it's the Philistines. Then in verse 2, David defeats the Moabites, who live to the east of Israel, across the Jordan River. Verse 3, David takes down Hadad-Ezer, the king of Zobah, which lies to the north of Israel. Verse 5, David strikes down the Syrians, who live still further north. And then finally in verse 13, David strikes down the Edomites, who live to the south of Israel, down below the Dead Sea. So do you see the geographic spread? North, south, east, west, All around Israel's territory, David is victorious. Any direction you go, he's winning. He's not only victorious though, he's also expanding. Notice the reference to the Euphrates River in verse 3. That's well beyond Israel's border at this point. Far to the east. And yet David's power extends even to that far point. You see, geography geography reveals the significance. David's kingdom is now well established And it's growing, reaching to places no other Israelite leader has been able to reach. Don't miss that, friends. David is doing something here that no other Israelite has ever done. Not Moses, not Joshua, not Samson, not Gideon, not Samuel, not Saul. Nobody. He's securing the land and he's expanding the borders. Geography speaks to the significance. 
That leads right into the second reason, which has to do with covenant. Look back at chapter 7, where God made His covenant with David. And notice verses 10 and 11 in that covenant. The Lord promised to David, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. So part of God's covenant was peace and security for Israel. Well, what's happening here in chapter 8? David gives Israel rest and peace and security. He defeats all of the enemies. You see how geography connects with covenant? All across the land, David subdues his enemies and therefore Israel dwells secure. In other words, friends, God is keeping His Word. God is keeping His Word. The Lord is faithful to His covenant. With each successive victory, the Lord is saying to His people, trust Me. Trust Me. Depend on Me. I will always do what I've promised. And that in turn helps us see the final reason why these conquests are significant. And that reason is theology. Geography, covenant, and now theology. While David fights the battles, these conquests are actually a platform for God to display His own glory. In fact, notice how each section of the fighting ends with the same summary. Verse 6, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And then verse 14, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. It's almost as though the Lord is reminding both David and us to not make the wrong conclusion. Don't look at this chapter and think, wow, the kingdom really rests on David's power. While David is some mighty military commander, the kingdom is thriving because of David. No, the kingdom rests on the Lord. And the kingdom is thriving because God fights for His people. Which we've seen throughout Samuel. God fights for His people. God gives victory to His King. Friends, don't you love how relentlessly God-centered the books of Samuel are? It seems every week the Lord has another way of showing us Himself. And it's happened here again in chapter 8. David defeats nearly everyone he could possibly fight. I mean, there's nobody else to fight. At this point in history, the Assyrians and the Egyptians are so weak, they're not even a threat. David beats everybody. And at the end of it all, what's the takeaway? The Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Geography, covenant, theology... That's why these conquests are significant. Because they remind us that the kingdom rests on God. That His covenant is sure. And that by His grace, God always keeps His Word to His people. Brothers and sisters, I hope this imperfect picture of the kingdom in David's day is an encouragement to us. Remember, we are also a people looking for a kingdom. As followers of Christ, we pray, Your kingdom come. That kingdom broke into this world with the coming of Christ, but its final fulfillment is yet to arrive. Every day we live looking for that kingdom. And yet while we wait, we continue to live in this particular world. We're still surrounded by darkness. Still surrounded by injustice, by strife, by conflict, by heartache. What's more, those horrible realities are often so 
dominant, it's enough to turn our prayers into doubts. Will your kingdom come, God? Will these things ever end? But that's where the imperfect picture of David's earthly kingdom can bring some encouragement. Think about it, friends. Were the Philistines a problem for the Israelites? Yes. For many long decades, they were. Were the Edomites and the Moabites and the Syrians a thorn in the nation's side? Yes, from the Exodus until now, basically. But even so, God kept His covenant. Even so, God kept His Word. Those persistent enemies were ultimately no match for the sovereign God. Through His King, God has conquered the enemies of His people in faithfulness to His Word. Friends, I hope you hear in that statement the echoes of the cross. That might sound a bit odd to say. We typically think of the cross as the place of the Lord Jesus' agony and humiliation. The, the place where He was killed and made a shameful spectacle. And in many ways that's true. But the cross was also a place of conquest. The place where King Jesus defeated enemies much worse than the Philistines and the Edomites. He conquered sin and death. Is this not what the Apostle Paul proclaims to us in Colossians 2? That God has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the crucified Christ? Yes, that's precisely the message of the Gospel. The cross of Christ is the good news of kingdom conquest. Not an earthly conquest like in David's day, but a spiritual conquest that has eternal consequences for the people of God. You should hear in this the echoes of the cross. And yet, even as we see that connection, we're still faced with this one particular question. So what? I mean, so what? What difference does this make? I mean, sure, it's a neat observation that helps put the Old Testament and the New Testament together, but i got to go to work tomorrow. What difference does this make? What practical difference does it make to know that the cross was kingdom conquest? So what? Well, perhaps an illustration can help answer that question. And since I'm basically a nerd, the illustration comes from history. So here you go. Some of you might know that May 8, 1945 was the day... Germany officially surrendered to the Allied powers in World War II, May 8th. VE Day, as it's now called, was the day that World War II ended in Europe. But as any good student of World War II will tell you, the end of the war was actually sealed 11 months earlier, on D-Day, June 6, 1944, when the Allies stormed the beaches of Normandy. On that day, Germany's army was broken. Germany's forces were broken. And the final victory was just a matter of time. Now, was there hard fighting still yet to come? Yes, absolutely, there was hard fighting. But that hard fighting was carried out with the confidence of impending victory. So if you'll forgive the rhyme, it was D-Day that propelled the soldiers on to V-E Day. Friends, that same dynamic is why this truth from God's Word should make a practical difference in how we live. Christ has conquered. Christ has stormed the beachhead Himself. 
He's done all of the hard fighting Himself. Christ has conquered. He has forever broken the forces of this world. And therefore, it's in light of the victory that Christ has already won that we carry out our Christian lives today. You see, it's the certainty of the conquest that keeps us going until the final victory. And and this should make all the practical difference in the world. We pray because we know Christ has conquered and is seated at the right hand of God. If Jesus isn't seated at the right hand of God, then prayer is stupid. We pray because Christ has conquered and He reigns on high. We love our neighbors because we know Christ has conquered and His glory is seen through the love we have for one another. We proclaim the Gospel because Christ has conquered and brought us into the light of His own glorious Kingdom. Far from being just a neat observation, this is the difference between apathy and zeal. This is the difference between cynicism and hope. So let's be encouraged here, brothers and sisters. If the question is, so what? Then the answer is everything. Let's be encouraged. David's earthly victories point us ahead to the kingdom conquest of Jesus' cross. And it's the triumph of that cross that enables and encourages us to run until the end. Well, as we continue on in the chapter, we see the second kingdom reality, this time in verses 7 to 12, kingdom stewardship. First it was kingdom conquest, now it's kingdom stewardship. You may have heard the phrase before, to the victor belongs the spoils. And that's something of what we find in these verses. As the conquering king, David receives the spoils of victory. You can see it there in verses 7 and 8. After after defeating Hadad-Ezer, David takes his shields of gold and brings them to Jerusalem. These shields would later be part of King Solomon's massive treasury. So David's victory bears fruit on into Solomon's reign. But it's not just conquered enemies who pay tribute to David. It's also surrounding rulers who submit to David rather than challenge him. Notice what happens beginning in verse 8. Toy, king of Hamat, sends his son to David as a gesture of honor. Now, Hamat was to the far north in modern-day Syria and This king, Toy, had been at war with Hadad-Ezer for some time. But now that David has crushed Hadad-Ezer, Toy puts two and two together. David is no joke. David is powerful. So Toy wisely forms an alliance. And to seal that alliance, verse 10, Toy sends David much silver, gold, and bronze. Again, these treasures would later be used in the construction of Solomon's temple. David will not be the one to build the temple, but he has the honor of providing the material for its construction. So David is is getting wealthy. David's getting rich. As the nations surrounding Israel are giving him their treasures. Now, if you remember the rest of the history of the Old Testament, you'll know that when Israelite kings acquired a lot of wealth, things did not go well. In fact, God Himself warned Israel against precisely this danger. He specifically commanded Israel's kings to not acquire excessive amounts of silver and gold. So, as we watch all of these riches flow into Jerusalem, there is this part of us that thinks, this is going to be trouble. But notice how David responds, verse 11. 
These also King David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued. Friends, that word dedicated is the key. It carries the idea of consecration, of setting aside for a particular or even a holy purpose. And that's what David does here. He sets this wealth aside for the Lord's purposes. It's a simple act, but it's an important one. At this point, David's heart is right where it should be. Not focused on himself, not focused on his growing wealth, but focused on the Lord and how God deserves the honor. In fact, I'll argue that's the main takeaway of these verses. David models for us the right response to God's blessing. He models for us the right response to God's blessing. We take what God gives and we use it for His purpose and His glory. Now, I know David is unique. I know what some of you are thinking. David is unique. He's the king. This doesn't have any connection to me. So I know David is unique. We're not likely to receive truckloads of silver and gold that we can use for gospel mission. If anybody does receive truckloads of silver and gold, I can help you find out what to do with it. We're not likely to get that. But don't let the uniqueness obscure the principle. This is an example of how we faithfully steward the blessing of God. It's an example of how we faithfully steward the blessing of God. We use it for His purpose and His glory. Listen, friends, one of the wonderful blessings of the new covenant is that God has given each of His children incredible gifts. This is part of the reason why Christ's kingdom is better than David's kingdom. Because in Christ's kingdom, all of God's people are richly blessed. And so, as we observe David steward this kingdom honor, it it is appropriate for us to pause here and ask ourselves, how am I doing stewarding the gifts that God has given to me? I mean, sure, I'm not the king who receives gold, but I have received other gifts. How am I taking what God gives and using it for His purpose and His glory? It's good to pause here and ask that question. And and understand, friends, I don't simply mean spiritual gifts like teaching or acts of mercy or exhortation. We certainly need to steward those gifts. And and I pray we're growing as a church and allowing each of us a place to do that. So I don't just mean spiritual gifts. I mean other gifts as well. Perhaps you're a gifted business person or a teacher or a medical professional. Your skill is not merely the product of genetics or training. It's a gift of God in your life. Do you think of your skill in that way? It's a gift of God. You should think of it that way. Such skills are blessings from the Lord. And using them well and faithfully is good stewardship that honors God. I wonder if the church has sometimes cast too narrow a vision for the stewardship of God's gifts. We, we talk about spiritual gifts, and we talk about money, sometimes badly. We talk about spiritual gifts, we talk about money, and rightfully so. But I think it's far past the time where we need to enlarge our vision a bit so that all of life and all of God's gifts are brought more into view. Whatever skills you have are gifts from God. 
that he intends for you to steward and to steward well. And that's part of how you honor King Jesus is by stewarding the gifts that he's given. That's part of why I love this chapter so much because there's this unexpected but compelling picture of what it looks like to live faithfully in the kingdom of God in a way that honors the Lord. We take what God gives and we steward it and give it back to Him for His purposes. That's, that's, that's kingdom faithfulness. Kingdom stewardship that honors the Lord. Before we move on to the final kingdom reality, there's, there's one more connection I would like you to see from this section of verses. It's just too good to pass up. I didn't, I didn't know how to make it into its own point, but I just wanted you to see it because it's just too good to pass up. If we were to summarize verses 7 to 12, what would we say is happening here? Verses 7 to 12. Well, the nations are showing honor to the king who reigns in Jerusalem. David's position is growing, and in response, the surrounding nations are either subjugated by David or submitted to David. The honor of the nations flows into Jerusalem to the glory of God's King. Now, do you remember what the Apostle John sees at the end of the book of Revelation, chapter 21? The new Jerusalem has come down from heaven, from God, And in verse 26, John the Apostle writes this, they will bring into it, that is, they will bring into the new Jerusalem the glory and the honor of the nations. It's the same thing we see here in 2 Samuel 8. What a glorious God we serve. David's kingdom is a shadow of that greater kingdom to come. I mean, I have no other application here other than to invite you to marvel at the God who arranges history in this way. That the events of a 10th century B.C. Israelite king would point ahead to the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a great God we serve. The nations bringing their honor into Jerusalem to the glory of God's King. It's a picture of what will happen on the last day. Well, that brings us to the final kingdom reality. And we'll close with this. In verses 15 to 18, we see kingdom character. Kingdom conquest, kingdom stewardship, and now kingdom character. The chapter ends with a list of David's royal officials. Notice verses 16 to 18. We meet a number of characters here that will play prominent roles in the chapters to come, especially Joab, who we know a little bit already, and Zadok the priest. In the terms of the narrative, this list marks the conclusion of David's rise to power. So if you think back to 1 Samuel chapter 16, when Samuel anointed David to be king, this list is the conclusion of that long story. David's slow, steady rise to power is now finished. It's done. His throne is secure, his kingdom is established, and he reigns over all Israel. This is the wrapping up of it. Chapter 9 starts a new section, and it basically goes downhill from there. So these verses wrap it all up. That sense of conclusion is very clear in verse 15, which is the most significant verse in the final section. Notice the summary of David's reign at this point. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Here we have Israel's monarchy at its ideal. David is well established with seemingly no rivals. Nobody's going to challenge him. 
But David does not use his power for his own benefit. No, David rules with justice and equity for all of his people. There are no bribes. There are no backroom deals. No palms are being greased. No bridges to nowhere are being built. It's it's just righteousness. It's justice, equity. It's a picture of society as God intended it to be. A king submitted to God who then rules in accordance with God's Word. Now, it's it's not going to last very long as we're going to see in just a couple of chapters. But for now, for now, this is the kingdom as God intended it to be. So, as, as we observe this ideal kingdom, the question we need to answer is this. Where does such an ideal come from? What accounts for the justice and equity of David's reign? What's the source? Where does it come from? Well, to answer that, we have to go unsurprisingly to the book of Deuteronomy as a timeout. How many times have I referenced the book of Deuteronomy in this series? I think it's like 27. It's enough to make you want to go and read the book. That's a not-so-subtle plug. Read the book of Deuteronomy. To answer the question about David's justice, we have to go read the book of Deuteronomy, specifically chapter 17. In Deuteronomy 17, God said that the king's first job was to write out for himself a copy of the law. It was the king's first job. Write out a copy of the law. And then the king was to meditate on that law day and night. That's why Psalm 1 talks about the man meditating on God's word day and night. It's a picture of what the king's supposed to do. Now, why did the king have to do that? Why did he have to write out the entire law? Well, again, God gives us the answer. Listen to what God said. This is verse 20, Deuteronomy 17. Why must the king write out the law? So that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment. Okay, now, not turn aside from the commandment. I get that part. But not lifted up above his brothers? The king has to write the law in order to not lift his heart up above his brothers. Brothers. In other words, meditating on the law ensured that the king treated God's people as he ought to. Not as pawns for his power, but as people he was meant to serve. That's why the king had to write out God's law. So it was the Word of God hidden in the king's heart, meditated on day and night. It was the Word of God that gave birth to justice and equity throughout the kingdom. Now, back to 2 Samuel 8. What accounts for David's ideal reign at this point? The Word of the Lord. Hidden in his heart. Bearing fruit in love for neighbor and a commitment to do what is right. You see, even David's ideal reign is not ultimately about David. It's about the Lord. And about the Lord's Word. Bearing fruit in the lives of His people. And that's how it has to be in our lives, friends. None of us are called to be the king in God's kingdom. That job is thankfully already filled by someone much more qualified than you or me. But we are called to display this kingdom character in our lives, in the spheres God has placed us. In fact, each of us has a responsibility to do just that. Friends, this is how ordinary, everyday Christians like us help cultivate these big overarching values like justice and equity. We take responsibility for our spheres of life and we seek by God's grace to apply what Scripture says is right. I think it's helpful to remember at this point that justice and equity are largely local values and local pursuits. 
our homes, our workplaces, our neighborhoods, God has given them to you as a stewardship. Again, God has given them to you as your responsibility. And the way that we pursue justice and equity, these broad overarching categories, the way that we pursue these things is by just investing ourselves in where God has us. And the local spheres God has given us. Those local spheres are the key. They're the venues, so to speak, for the display of this kind of kingdom character. That's how nations as a whole get justice and equity. As God's people individually take responsibility for where they are and live out the truth of God's Word in each of their spheres of life. So what does that look like specifically? Well, I don't know. I can't tell you. It would be presumptive for me to give you specific prescriptions. I can't do that because I don't live in your neighborhood. I don't work in your office. Instead, my job this morning is to raise the responsibility and to encourage us all to think and to listen. Perhaps this is an area where you need to sit down with other believers and think and pray and plan together on what the specifics look like. I can't give you the specifics. But I can tell you where those specifics will start with God's Word, hidden in our hearts, treasured in our souls, valued above the wisdom of this age, and then faithfully applied in all of our spheres of life. That's where this kind of kingdom character starts. That's where it comes from. So perhaps the most pressing question today is not, what specific things should I do tomorrow? Perhaps the most pressing question today is, whether or not God's Word is the controlling voice in your heart and mind. Whether or not God's Word is the controlling voice in your heart and mind. David's kingdom character was a fruit of the law of the Lord. Meditating on it day and night. And that's how it will be for us as well, brothers and sisters. If we long to display kingdom character, then we must plant ourselves in the source of that character. The just and righteous Word of God. Well, 2 Samuel 8 is not a perfect picture. No one would mistake this for the new heavens and the new earth. But it is a picture nonetheless. Kingdom conquest, kingdom stewardship, kingdom character. You see, it's, it's still the kingdom. The basics are here. God's king on God's throne, shepherding God's people, defeating God's enemies, and honoring God's word. It's still the kingdom. And so, as we conclude this chapter in David's kingdom... Perhaps the best way to do so is with the good news declared to us in Revelation 11 about a greater kingdom where the Apostle John writes that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ and He shall reign forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray.